You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Outstanding. Man, you know, I got to rethink this thing. I shouldn't be following a kid's choir to preach because I guarantee you I'm not going to be able to pull off what they just pulled off. I really want to say thank you to all of our children's ministry workers. And uh, I was sitting on the front row reminiscing a little bit and remembering what it's like to be a parent sitting out there while your child is up on the stage and you have no control over them in that moment. Yeah, I can remember that. So I was over there just kind of smiling to myself. I won't share any of the stories because I don't have permission to for my kids. But there's a few that stick out in my mind. And, and see, then I had that extra part of, oh, that's the pastor's kid. And uh, so I know what it's like to sit out there, parents, and uh, your kid be on stage and, you know, stuff's going to happen. But if, if you're new to our church or maybe you're a guest today for the very first time, let me tell you that this church, uh, its leadership uh, takes a lot of seriousness uh, with our children's ministry and our student ministry. As a matter of fact, we invest a large portion of our budget and what this church gives to that group you just saw on this stage so that when they get to that place, some of them already have, some of them are still on the journey, that they can say with confidence that I have a place in the kingdom and Jesus is my king and is my Lord. That's what this church is about, is investing in children and students and any person that'll listen, we want to pour the gospel into their life. Turn over to Matthew 28. We're going to take a little break from our um, model prayer and songs. We'll pick that back up next week. Uh, also, by the way, you, you have a pretty high standard by which you must sing out in a little while when the worship team comes out. You're, you're going to need to at least exceed what you just heard on the stage, the way they were singing out. So you've got a, a task ahead of you. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. If I were to ask you to write down what the mission of the church is, what would you say it is? Would you say it's children's ministry, student ministry? Would you say that it is uh, you know, having a good worship team, you know, having a great Sunday morning experience? What, what would be some of the descriptors that you would use in that mission statement on what the church is to be about? Well, fortunately, Jesus has already provided that for us. And not only has he provided it for us, but he has provided such clarity in these words for the church that there is no mistaking whatsoever. What, what I find amazing, and I'm guilty as this as anybody, is how often the local church complicates, overcomplicates what the church is to be about. We can focus our attention on so many different things, and if we don't pause and ask ourselves some really straightforward questions about the things that we're doing week in and week out, are they connected to what Jesus told us to clearly be about? We are joining some 700-plus churches across the state of North Carolina this morning as they have all committed to fill their baptistries for baptisms today. Some of them did it as an act of faith. Some of the churches are very small, and especially after COVID, some of them are still having a hard time recovering. They may only have 15 or 20 people that are gathering this morning, live, in person. 
they weren't really sure if they were going to have anybody to baptize. But what, what the leadership of our North Carolina convention said is, you go ahead and fill that baptistry because here's what we found out. And I'm on the board of directors for the North Carolina Baptist, so I know what's going on in our state. And here's what I found out. There's a whole lot of churches in our convention, in our association across the state, who their baptistries, built-in baptistries, were filled with Christmas decorations. That there's churches in our state that have not baptized anyone in over five years. That's why their baptistries have become a storage area. Some of them have cobwebs because they haven't been used. So how is it that, that Jesus makes a very clear statement about what the church is to be about? How is it that in our day and age, there are less churches that are fulfilling what Jesus has clearly said? This is what we call mission drift, and it can happen in a church, it can happen in a family, and it can happen in an individual's life. Not only is the church called to do what Jesus is saying here in Matthew, but us as individuals, us as family units, this is what we're called to. This is our purpose. This is why we're following Jesus. It's very easy to drift away from what the mission was meant to be. Let me read you a mission statement. This is of a very influential university. Let me read you what their mission statement was in 1636 when this university was founded. This was their mission statement. Quote, to be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. It's pretty clear, isn't it? As you will see, that mission statement connects perfectly to what Jesus said is the mission of the church and the mission of every individual follower of Jesus. That university was founded by a group of intellectual Jesus followers who, who became professors in this college, but they, they formed this college because they wanted to train and equip ministers in theology and doctrine and how to share the gospel, how to build the kingdom. They, they emphasized character and integrity. On every diploma that came out of this university in the first probably 80 years of its existence, in Latin it had these words on every single diploma. It was in Latin and it says, truth for Christ and the church. What an incredible university to have that as their mission statement and as their end goal. You're going to be surprised to find out that that university that I'm talking about is none other than Harvard University. Have they drifted away from their original mission statement? Well, just a couple of weeks ago, I read in the news about a gentleman by the name of Greg Epstein. Greg Epstein has just been appointed as the new chaplain of Harvard University. And one of his roles is to give guidance and leadership to all the other chaplains, which are 40, 40 chaplains to be exact. And among these 40 chaplains, you have a chaplain who's a Christian chaplain, you have a chaplain who's a Buddhist, you have a chaplain who's Muslim, you have a chaplain who is, well, name the religion, they've got a chaplain for that. And this guy has been appointed as the overseer of all the chaplains, and he is the main chaplain at Harvard University. And what's interesting about Greg Epstein is he's the first atheist to ever become chaplain. <laughs> now that poses a question, does it not? How does a chaplain, well, how does a person become a chaplain 
who does not believe in any God whatsoever, whether it be the Muslim God or the Christian God or the Buddhist God or any other God. He is an atheist, and he makes no apologies for that. So he was asked what, how he's going to lead the chaplaincy. How, how are you going to do this? Because from our perspective, it's obviously a big question. And this is what he said. He says, we, meaning the college, not just him. He was speaking on behalf of the college. He says, we don't look to a God for answers. We are each other's answers. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. Well, we shouldn't be surprised that an atheist is not going to look to a God for answers because he doesn't believe that God exists. But let's just think for a moment about his context. Let's think about those college students who are struggling with the meaning and purpose of life. So I would imagine that there's someone who's on that college campus, maybe they're a freshman, maybe they're in their first semester. There's a lot of life questions that come up, right? I mean, your whole routine has changed. You're meeting all kinds of new people, all this pressure to get good grades. And there's a lot of life questions. Why am I here? Am I doing the right thing? Is this the right purpose for me? What, what is my life to be about? So who are they going to go? Well, they're going to go to Greg Epstein. And Greg Epstein's going to tell them, well, first of all, don't look to a God for answers. And second of all, the answers you're looking for are actually inside of you. <laughs> for a university that started out that said on every diploma, truth for Christ and the church, they've moved a long way, haven't they? You know what their mission statement is today? It says the mission of Harvard College is to educate the citizen, citizens and citizen leaders for our society. We do this through our commitment to the transformative power of a liberal arts and sciences education. I would imagine that back in the day, they could have said transformative power through the Christ and through the gospel and through God's word, but not today. And every organization, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're making Coca-Cola, if you are building dining room tables, or whether you're a church, you've got a purpose that you're trying to fulfill. And over time, over time, you can drift away from that. Harvard didn't get up one day. They, they, the leadership didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what, we're going to become a godless university. No, it happened over a long period of time. And so it is with the church. But you see, our mission is far more important than making Coca-Cola or dining room tables or building cars. It's far more important because it deals with the eternity of human beings. So we need to know clearly and precisely what Jesus expects of us. And, and we need to understand that as his followers, if this is the expectations that guess what's going to come up when we stand before him one day? Because we as Christians believe, and the Bible teaches that we follow Jesus in this life, but one day we stand before him, and one day he's going to ask us, hey, what did you do with what I gave you? I gave you a clear vision. What did you do? In just a little while, you're going to get to see a brother and sister be baptized. First service, husband and wife. They were just married in July 17th. Dylan and Alyssa Stocks. And to hear their testimony... Dylan was once an atheist, and today, this morning, he proclaimed to the whole world that he's not ashamed of the gospel, along with his wife, right here in this baptistry, just married on July the 17th. In just a little while, you're going to see a brother and sister do exactly the same thing. 
And we need to understand as a church what our mission is. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this text. There's just some questions that I'm going to raise. And then we're going to answer those questions based off of what Jesus has clearly said in this mission statement. Look at verse 16. He says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So Jesus, after his resurrection, tells the women that see him alive to go tell the 11 disciples to meet him in Galilee and that he's going to have some things he needs to say to them there. Now, we need to get the background a little bit here before we jump into what Jesus is saying. So remember, in in Matthew 27, the worst day of all days for the disciples has just occurred. They spent three and a half years with Jesus, only to see him hung on a cross, beaten to death, bleeding to death, between two criminals. The disciples themselves have scattered. They, they believe that the next people in line to be crucified would be them because they are his followers and everybody knew that. Both the Jewish people and the Romans got together, the Jewish leadership, and said, this man must die. And it would be easy to understand that Peter, James, John, and the other disciples would be the next in line to be arrested. So they scatter. John is the only one who stays with Jesus all the way to his dying moments. The rest of them have scattered. Jesus, his body is taken off of the cross, his lifeless body. Jesus is graveyard dead. You need to understand that. He was not somehow in a coma. He didn't somehow pass out. Jesus is dead. Romans who crucified people did not make mistakes in taking live people off of a cross. He was dead. And they buried him in a tomb that he didn't own. Imagine the sadness of the disciples. Imagine the weight of that. What do we do now? Now, Jesus had already told them that he was going to die, and he told them that he was going to resurrect three days later. But in that moment of the pain, the fear, the tragedy of all that they've experienced, that's not even in their mind. But what's interesting is, this is in the mind of the Jewish leadership and the Romans, because you know what they did? The Jewish leaders went to the Romans and said, you guys need to post a guard around this tomb because Jesus himself talked about that he was going to resurrect. We got to make sure that the disciples don't steal his body and start a rumor and start this whole thing over because it'll be worse in that case than before. So let's put some soldiers Let's seal that tomb up and let's make sure that nothing is done with his body. Three days later, the stone is removed. There's some angels that meet with the women who came to see Jesus. Mary Magdalene was one of the first. And the angels tell the women, why are you here looking in this cemetery for life? Jesus has resurrected. Go and tell the 11 that Jesus is alive. When you lay the gospel accounts, you have all of this, what seems to be contradictory, but actually fits together perfectly. The women go to tell the disciples. James, I mean, I'm sorry, John and Peter are the first here. They run to the tomb. They find the tomb empty. They run back, and eventually they end up in an upper room, a locked upper room. Thomas is not there. And all of a sudden, as they're all trying to figure out what's going on, Jesus appears in the upper room, and you can see the wounds, the fresh wounds in his hands and on his head. Later on, he would appear again in the upper room, and this time Thomas is there. And Thomas even says, unless I see the wounds in his hand and I can put my hand in the wound in his side, I will not believe. Jesus appears, shows him the wounds, and before Thomas can even touch them, Thomas falls on his face before Jesus and says to Jesus, you are my Lord, you are my God. So the disciples have already seen Jesus. 
And now Jesus has sent word by the women, 10 days after his resurrection, for the 11 and others that were following Jesus to gather in Galilee, because Jesus has something very important to say to them. Verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now that phrase bothers me. I mean, and, and, and every time I've read this, it, it always makes me wonder how in the world could a group of people doubt anything about Jesus now that you see him alive? Well, after I do a little work and investigate, here's what I found out. Some were worshiping, some were doubting. It doesn't tell us the context of when they were doubting. Here's what I think is happening. The 11 who go to Galilee to see Jesus, they've already seen him. They were in that upper room both times when Jesus appeared in the room. And in that second time, especially, even Thomas no longer doubted. So here's what I'm thinking. The 11 who go there who've already seen Jesus, there's no doubts in their heart whatsoever about who he is. But there are other people who are going there to see Jesus who have not seen him yet. They've only heard the rumors. Maybe some of them have gone to the tomb and seen that it's empty. But they have not seen Jesus yet, and they are still wrestling with, is this true or is this not? Well, when they arrive in Galilee and they see Jesus the King standing before them with wounds on his head and in his hands, make no mistake about it, that day in Galilee, there was no more doubt that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is. Verse 18. And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the first question I want to pose this morning, and I think this, this is a foundational question before we can ever get into the rest of this content, is what if I'm struggling with doubt? Can we all just be kind of honest here for just, can we just be transparent for a moment? Not out loud, but just, just in your own mind and in your own heart, let's just all be honest here. There have been things, there have been the things you've heard about Jesus. They've heard, there's been things you've heard me say. There's been things you've heard in your walk all these years, whether you're a Christian or not, that you just, well, you just doubt. Did Jesus really bodily resurrect? Did Jesus really raise Lazarus from a tomb after his body was decomposing? Is Jesus the only way, the only truth, the only life? I'm hearing a lot of things from the world. I'm hearing a lot of things in podcasts and music and, and famous people who have a lot of money, and they're all telling me that, man, all paths lead to God. You can be a Muslim, and you can go to heaven. You can be a Buddhist, you can go to heaven. Matter of fact, heaven is whatever you want to be. As a matter of fact, I've even heard that heaven is here on earth if we can just get our education system fixed and our political system fixed. We can have, we can have utopia here on earth. Listen, I, I got it. I understand. You're hearing all of this stuff, and there's some serious doubts in your heart. Maybe for some of you, you're still never really sure of where you stand with Christ. There's very few months that go by in, in my life as a pastor that I don't deal with this with somebody. Somebody will say, well, you know, I, I've been in the church all these years, but I still am not really sure. I've been baptized maybe multiple times. I've, you know, I've got my church, i got my name on several different church roles, but I still, when I pillow my head, I just, I just don't know. Doubt. You see, I think, I think the reason why doubt is right here, through the Holy Spirit inspiring Matthew to write these words down, is because the reality is, is we've got to deal with this doubt before we can ever move any further into Great Commission work. If we don't deal with this now, if we don't, if we don't put this on the table and wrestle with it, 
and find the answers we're looking for, then there's no way we're going to be able to participate in any other things that Jesus is talking about here. Because the thing about doubt is it always keeps you on the sideline. That's why Satan is so good at using it. Doubt will always keep you in the dugout. You'll never find joy or peace. You'll never be able to serve. You'll never really be able to share with anyone about the transforming power of Christ in your life because you're never sure if you've been transformed. Here's the thing about doubt. Doubt becomes very dangerous when you turn it inward. And that's exactly what Satan wants you to do. Oh, don't, don't, don't acknowledge that you got doubt. Oh, no. You got to look like you've got it all together. You got to look like you know. You got to look like you've got all the answers when, in fact, you don't. So doubt becomes very dangerous when we turn it inward. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to, if, if there's something you're struggling with, there's something you're wrestling with about this whole thing about following Jesus, about where you stand with Christ, listen, your eternity is hanging in the balance. We have got to have a conversation with that, about that. And my door, my phone, my email, my any other way to come, I'm, I'm wide open. I will clear my schedule to have that conversation with you. I've got leaders in this church that will clear their schedule to have that conversation with you because nothing else matters. It matters not if your name is on a church membership roll, if you're not where you need to be with Christ. It doesn't matter or not if you've been baptized, if you don't even know what it means to follow Jesus. So we've got to deal with these doubts. We've got to put them on the table. So let's you and I, I don't drink coffee, but I'll have a, some sweet tea with you. I'll meet you wherever you want to meet. Anytime you want to meet, we'll sit down and we'll talk through this. And I will listen and we'll get in God's Word, and we'll deal with these doubts. And I've got a dozen other leaders that will do the same with you. But don't turn it inward because it grows into bitterness. It grows into anger. It grows into more doubt. And that's exactly what Satan wants to do with that. Here's why. Verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. You see, doubt undermines the reality of who Jesus is in your own life. Jesus is either king or he's not. He's either savior or he's not. He's either the Lord or he's not. And doubt erodes away in your mind and in your heart who Jesus is. And why does Jesus say this right here? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that, did, that was not the beginning of Jesus' existence. Jesus has been in existence in eternity past. But in that moment in Bethlehem, even in the womb of Mary, we have something the universe had never seen or experienced before. We have God, the creator of the universe, with flesh on. 100% God, 100% man, all at the same time. How in the world is that possible? And not only that, when Jesus began his ministry by being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and he begins his public ministry, Jesus backs up that claim. How? Healing the blind, giving hearing back to the deaf, standing at the tomb of Lazarus. He calls for a dead man to come forth, body already decomposing. And Jesus calls for Lazarus to come out, and, G and Lazarus walks out. But just a few minutes earlier, Jesus is weeping. So we see both his humanity, that he's heartbroken over all the pain 
that this family's going through that he loved dearly, but just a few minutes later, he's going to show his power and his deity in that moment, and he's going to say, Lazarus, come forth. But through Jesus' earthly life and his earthly ministry, Jesus made the choice to not live in the superiority of all of his power and all of his deity. Why? Because he had a robe of flesh on. It doesn't mean he was less than God. He's completely God, perfectly. But because he had a robe of flesh on, he made the choice to not engage and all the power that he had, even though we see instances of it all through. Now, after his death and after his resurrection, he looks at the whole world and he says, now all power, all power has been given to me. It hasn't been given to Muhammad. It hasn't been given to Buddha. It hasn't been given to Hare Krishna. It hasn't been given to any other leader or any other prophet, whether that be Moses or David or Daniel, only one, Jesus, only him. And how do we know that to be true? It's because something happened on that hillside all those years ago. You know what? Not only do we know that something happened, but the Jewish leadership and the Romans knew something happened. They've got an empty tomb here. You know, those Roman soldiers together paid them all off. Something historic happened at that cave on that day. And if Jesus walked out of that tomb alive, and he predicted that he would do it, that Jesus is everything that he's ever said that he is, and you can put your trust in him. Or that Jesus was the biggest liar the world has ever seen. And he was able to pull off the biggest hoax has ever seen. And I'm wasting my time, and you're wasting your time, and every single person that's ever said they followed Jesus is not following anything but a fairy tale. That's your two options. Here's where I'm at. Jesus walked out of the grave alive. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He is the judge. He is the one I will stand before. He is the one that Muhammad will bow his knee to. He is the one that every president, every king, every world leader who claimed to be something will bow their knee at that king and acknowledge that he is Lord. It'll be too late. So either he is or either he isn't. And Jesus says here, we've got to get this nailed down that all authority and all power has been given to him and no one else. So what if I struggle with doubt? Well, we deal with the doubt. Talk with someone. Put it on the table. Acknowledge it and say, I am wrestling with this because your eternity very well may be hanging in the balance. Listen, folks, we're not playing games here. We're not here to sell computers or put on a stage show. We are dealing with eternity here and yours hangs in the balance. We're not selling product here. This is serious business. This is the serious business of whether you spend eternity in torment or enjoy peace forever. That's what we're dealing with here. Let's just boil it all down to what it really is. We're not here to sell you something. We're here to tell you where you can find life. Notice what else he says. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. 
So Jesus says, here's the mission of the church. Here's what the church is to be about, and not only just the church, but each individual follower of mine. He says, you are to make disciples. Now, we, I want you to see this in the Great Commission. For those of you who've been part of the church for any amount of time, you've heard about the Great Commission. This is the Great Commission. This is where Jesus, in his last words, says to all of us, this is what my church is to be about. And for most of my life growing up, when I was growing up in the church that I grew up in, I always heard the emphasis on this statement as the go. So go, go to Honduras, uh, go to Mexico, uh, go to China, uh, go to Africa, go, go, go. I always heard that the imperative or the command in the Great Commission was those first words, go. You know what I found out? That's not the case. In the Greek language, the imperative or the command is this, make disciples. See, that's a game changer. Because what that does is that erodes away this idea that the only people who are to be engaged in this kind of work are missionaries or pastors. That's what I grew up believing. I grew up believing that mission work were for missionaries. And missionaries, pastors, were the ones who'd been called and ordained and all those things. And when I was a kid, the church I grew up in had missionaries that my church sponsored, and they would, they would come now, this is going to tell my age. Some of the younger people in here are going to go, what? They would have a slide projector. You know what that was, right? For some of us north of 44, 45, probably somewhere in that age, you know what I'm talking about. This is a big clunky machine that had pictures, little tiles of pictures, and it would project up on a screen. My church didn't even have a screen. There were a few times they had to put a sheet up. But I would sit there because my parents always sat on the fourth row, left side, and I would sit there enamored with these pictures from places like Honduras. And this family who moved his whole family down to Honduras and had been down there for years and had started a church and there's people getting baptized in these muddy rivers and there's pictures of wildlife and where he's serving in a little metal shack where his church gathered and I was blown away. But here's what happened. I began to think in my mind that, oh, that's what they do. No, that's what all Jesus followers are called to do. Listen to what he says. He says, go therefore. He doesn't say go therefore pastors. He doesn't say go therefore missionaries. He says, go make disciples. Make disciples is the imperative. Make disciples is the goal. Make disciples is the command, not the go. Now the go is important. We'll get to that in a minute. So what's the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to make disciples. What is a disciple? You ever thought about what that is? A disciple is simply a learner of Christ. Now, you can be a disciple of a lot of things. I've met some disciples of the Republican Party. You can laugh. It's okay. I've met some disciples of the Democrat Party. I've met some disciples of the Independents. I've met some, hey, I've met some uh, recently. I've met some disciples of socialism. Had a conversation about that. There are people who are disciples of capitalism. There are people who are disciples of the Kardashian family. You, can, you should laugh there probably. I've met disciples of the NFL. They're getting pretty fired up right now. Disciples of baseball. You get where I'm going here. A disciple is a learner, but here's where it gets very specific. When we're talking about discipleship within those respect of Christianity and the gospel and the Great Commission, we're talking about learners of Christ. 
We're talking about people who have no other master other than one. The two people who are getting ready to get baptized, part of what they're doing when we baptize them is they are declaring to the whole world without any shame or reservation that Jesus Christ is their master and they will have no other master. Now we go through our whole life following Jesus and there's all these things competing to be our master, but as followers of Jesus, Jesus is the only one who can be your master. As a disciple, a learner of Christ, you only have one master. A disciple is not just a church member. A disciple is not just someone who serves. A disciple is not someone who raised their hand. A disciple may not be someone who simply shows up every Sunday. A disciple is someone who thinks about Jesus other than one day a week. A disciple is someone who thinks about prayer more than just Sunday. A disciple is someone who worships God when they see the sunrise and when they see the sunset. That's a learner of Christ. It's not just someone who repeats a prayer or walks an aisle or gets baptized. It's absolute commitment to one master. So how are we going to do this? How are we going to make disciples? I mean, that's, that's a pretty tall order. If the imperative, if the command is make disciples, well, Jesus tells us how to do it. He says, go. He says, baptize. And he says, teach. So how do we make disciples? We go, we baptize, and we teach. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? But here's another question. Who do we go to? Well, he defines that for us. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, again, this is where I began to think that I'm supposed to get on a plane. But missionaries do this kind of work. You see that word nations there? The Greek word behind that English word is ethne. Ethne just means all people groups. So here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, go therefore, make disciples of all people, all different kinds of people. That doesn't necessarily mean that you've got to get on a plane. I don't know if you've noticed this. How many of you have been sitting at a stoplight here in Lumberton? And you look to your left or right and lay next to you. I mean, you look around, right? A little bit nosy. Who's next to me? Where's that music I hear? You turn and look, and you look in the car next to you, and you see someone with a burqa on a headdress, and you immediately go, wow, that's someone of a different religion? It seems to indicate that they're probably not from around here. Maybe you went into a gas station and the person who was running the gas station was from India. We have a growing population of folks who are Hispanic. God has brought the nations to our doorstep. So when Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, that may include getting on a plane. That may be going on a mission trip with us somewhere. But it definitely includes and absolutely includes the people who live across the street from you, whether they be white or black or anything in between. Whether they be rich or whether they be poor, all groups of people. So what is the mission of the church? Make disciples. Who are we to go to? All people groups. Now, how are we to do this? Well, we are to go. And notice what else he says. We are to baptize. To me, it seems a little, I don't know, just kind of unusual that Jesus would include baptism in this statement. But it probably shouldn't surprise us because baptism is that important. And I'm afraid that even in our denomination, I'm afraid that baptism just isn't all that important anymore. 
Here's why it's important. It is an intentional act by which we surrender our will to the will of Jesus. Jesus says, be baptized. Jesus himself was baptized. And he says, I want you to follow me. And the first step in following me is to follow me in like manner by being baptized. And let me be very clear about this. We as a church find conclusive evidence in the New Testament that baptism is dunking you underwater. Now, if you come from a different background, Presbyterian, Methodist, I love you. We're together on the Great Commission work. I love you. We need to be engaged together. We're not against you. If you're, if you're evangelical and you're part of the, the, the Scripture's authority, we are together in the Word. But I can tell you this right now. As for this church, we are going to follow Jesus in the mode of baptism, which means putting you under the water. You know why that is? Because that's what the Scripture teaches us. And I think it's important. If you look at Romans 6, Paul says, and he uses baptism as the illustration, he says that this illustrates someone who dies and then is resurrected. And while your background may be sprinkling, I really don't know how to fit sprinkling into what the New Testament teaches me about what this baptism event is to be. So maybe we just have to agree to disagree, but for this church, we, high, we hold very high importance for what's about to happen in a few moments. We're going to stick you under, just like Jesus was stuck under the water. He was baptized. He was immersed. That word baptized right there means immerse. So Jesus says that we are to make disciples by going, intentionally going, going across the street, going to a family dinner, going to the family doctor, going to a dance recital. You've got your little league baseball team. Your coach doesn't know Jesus. Some of the other family. Intentionally going but we intentionally go because we have made a public proclamation that we are Jesus followers, learners of him. That's, he's our master and we are his servants. That's why baptism is so important. But not only that, Jesus says not only are you going to baptize them and stick them under, but you're going to do it in the name of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In just a little while, if you've seen our baptisms before, there'll be a point where I will say that. I baptize you, my brother and my sister, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. That is not some kind of incantation spell that I'm proclaiming here, right? It comes right out of the Great Commission. Because here's the reality. What happens in this baptistry is the imagery or the picture of a change that's already happened in that person's life. Baptism does not save you. If you're expecting baptism to save you, all you're doing is getting wet because that's all that's happening. Your salvation happens before we get into this baptistry. This baptistry reveals what's already happened in your heart. So we got to understand that in that moment of salvation, when you surrendered your life to Christ and you cried out to Christ for salvation, that God the Father was involved in that. That at the moment you put your faith in Jesus, God looks down at you. He knows you by name. He knows the hairs on your head. And he says, my wrath, my anger, my judgment is no longer turned towards that person. I'm going to turn my wrath and my anger away from him because now he's no longer an alien. He's no longer an outsider. He's now a son or a daughter of mine. That's what God did. We call that justification. God says that you, get this, that you are holy, <laughs> that you are a saint at that moment, declared holy by God, the God who was going to 
punish you for your sins if you rejected Christ. And that single moment turns his wrath away from you and adopts you as a son or a daughter of the king and the creator of this universe. That's what God did. But Jesus is also involved. Jesus died on the cross in your place, the cross that you deserve, the death that you deserve, the pain and the anguish that you deserve, he took upon himself. Jesus accomplished for you what you could not accomplish on your own. So Jesus is intimately involved in that moment of surrendering your life to him. And and he's the one you're going to follow. He's the one you're going to model your life after. And then the Holy Spirit is involved because the Holy Spirit was drawing you was dealing with your heart. You knew that there was something you had to do. You knew that you had to stop living for yourself, and you knew you had to stop and surrender to Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit was doing. And then, in that moment when you were saved, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you. So see, in that moment of being reconciled to your Creator, being made right with God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit was involved in that. And when we get in this baptistry, we're going to proclaim that truth, that you're being baptized in the name of the Trinitarian God, Yeah, that's deep theology, but that's good stuff. It really is. He says, so you're going to baptize them. You're going to go. You're going to baptize. And then finally, verse 20, he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So if we're a learner of Christ, it makes sense that there's a process of learning. That growing in Christ means knowing Christ, abiding in Christ, learning from Christ. How am I to speak like Christ? How am I to live like Christ? How am I to make decisions about my finances and my marriage and my kids and my grandkids? All of that is under the lordship of Jesus, and we want to live like he lived, love like he loved, and talk like he talked. That's that's what this ministry of discipleship is all about. But there's a danger here. And I think a lot of churches have gotten into this mode of thinking about discipleship. That if we can just teach you some things, if we can just get you to memorize some scripture and learn a few things about Jesus, if we can just give you some more knowledge, that's discipleship. That knowledge, the transfer of knowledge, is itself discipleship. Well, we're not helping you if we just make you a smarter sinner. That's not the goal. The goal is to be transformed as we follow Jesus. And how do we do that? Yes, part of that is learning about Jesus, learning about the Bible, learning about what it means to be part of a congregation. But it also means relationship with others who are on the journey. You see, the church, the body of Christ, we're to do life together. And if COVID has caused any struggles or difficulties, one of the things it's caused is we've been separated, spread out. But I firmly believe, and the Bible teaches this, that there is value and power in following Jesus together corporately. We need each other. That's why we will never stop. Will we take precautions? Yes. Will we shut down for a while if we have to, for, to protect you? Yes. But this church, High Park Baptist Church, will never stop meeting because Jesus commanded us to gather We must gather. For those of you who are online, we're glad that you're gathering with us through technology. But we are not going to stop gathering. We'll figure it out. Whatever challenges are coming, we'll figure it out. But we will continue to gather because that is part of discipleship. So we have knowledge, understanding, learning Christ. But we also have doing it together. You cannot be a Lone Ranger Christian and grow in your faith. You can't. With the church, with all of its problems... 
And we're not a perfect one either. You need the church. You need the people that you walk with and do life with. And here's the third reason why it's got to be more than just knowledge. We have to have a relationship. And from that relationship, we have accountability. Hey, sister, I haven't seen you in a while. You know, are you doing okay? Hey, how's your walk with Jesus? Hey, what's God teaching you in the Word right now? How's your prayer life? We need that. That's what Jesus provided for these 12, which are now 11. He, he, would, he would teach them. He would send them out. He would hold them accountable. He would do a relationship. with Jesus didn't go in a temple somewhere and just stand on a platform and teach a whole bunch of people and hope it all works out. Jesus did life with those 12 disciples. Discipleship in the local church has got to be more than hear me rant and rave for 30 to 45 minutes per week. You need relations with other people. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The writer of this mission statement says he will be with us in the work he's given us to do. That authority and that power, guess where that authority and that power comes from? It flows from him to us, the Holy Spirit who lives in us, to accomplish the work that he's called us to accomplish. Just like Harvard University has strayed from its original mission, so too has many church, have many churches strayed from their original mission. How does that happen? Well, quickly, I want to give you four things, and we'll close and we'll move on to some worship and baptisms. Here's four things that I see going on right now in church culture that has caused churches to, to slowly drift away from what Jesus told us to clearly be about. First of all, the church that relies on their pastor, programs, and their pageantry rather than Jesus. Let me break that down. The church that says Great Commission work is the pastor's responsibility or the deacon's responsibility or staff's responsibility. Or they say, hey, we're going to rely on our great worship team. We're going to rely on our great children's ministry. We're going to rely on this program or this pageant or this great thing that we do. The, the churches that put all of their emphasis on those things but yet they take no personal ownership of the Great Commission, those churches over time find themselves far, far, far away from the mission of Jesus. It takes time. But enough emphasis on the wrong things eventually takes you far away from the mission that Jesus has given you. We have something that is happening here on Tuesday night that I think biblically is one of the most important things that happens in any week of this church. Our prayer gathering. On Tuesday night at 7 p.m. You are welcome to come. We're here. There's been a few that's gathered with me the last few weeks. We've had some rich times of prayer together. How do we prevent from drifting? It's what happens on Tuesday nights. And what happens in my prayer time during the week is that we stay focused on the Great Commission work. Second thing that causes churches to drift away from their mission. They emphasize numerical growth over discipleship. Numerical growth, that's got to be a good thing, right? Every seat filled, every Sunday school filled, every event filled. Yeah, those are good things. But if that becomes the only thing, if, if, if the measure of success is five services with a building filled, but we ain't reaching nobody for Christ, and we're not preaching the gospel, and people's lives aren't being transformed, all you've got is a good stage show and nothing else. You're a mile wide and an inch deep. Hyde Park has got to be more than just the biggest church in town. 
We cannot be satisfied just with a nice building, a parking lot, a gym, and some programs. We cannot rest on those things of the past. If we do, we will be just as far away from our mission statement of what Jesus gave us as Harvard University is from theirs. It's more than just numbers. Numbers are people, people who stand between heaven and hell. People who've put their faith in Jesus but are still infants in Christ. Our responsibility as a church is to see them be baptized, to be sent out, to be taught and to be trained and be equipped. Third, the churches that drift from their mission that Jesus gave them are the ones who focus more on the come and see rather than go and tell. Here's what this church does. This church says, oh, come see our program. Oh, come see our speaker. Oh, come hear this. Come see that. Come see our stage show. Come see our play. Come see this. Come see that. And that's all there is. There's no relational. There's no connection. There's no proclaiming Jesus. It's just one show after another show after another show. The churches that put all of their emphasis on and come see all of our greatness, over time, drift from their mission. And then finally, the church that drifts from its mission is the ones who compromise truth for the sake of wokeness. And I don't even really know what wokeness is, but I'm using that term this morning because I got a little idea what it means. Wokeness, the best I can tell, means the opposite of what Scripture teaches. So therefore, I can't follow you to wokeness. I will probably remain to be unwoke. Does that mean I'm asleep? I don't think it does. I think I'm, as more, I think I'm more awake today than I've ever been. So I know I'm not asleep. What I do know is the culture rejects me for, for the stand that I take in truth. But I'm going to stand with that resurrected Lord. I'm going to walk with him regardless of what my culture does. Because he resurrected from the dead. And I'm going to stand before him one day. And so with this woke culture that's trying to get me to follow them. I'm not going to be angry. I'm not going to be hateful. I'm not going to be that. I'm going to be what I need to be for Jesus, and that means loving people where they are. But any church that buys into what the culture's saying is truth right now, guess where that church is going to follow them? Right off into the oblivion, away from the very mission that Jesus has given them. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to participate in what Jesus has clearly told us to do, and that is to baptize two young people that, uh, quite frankly, I am blessed to even be able to know. Father in heaven, thank you for all that you've done this morning. And Father, I pray that in these moments as we worship together, as we come around the baptistry together, that you would be exalted. Father, if there are lingering doubts in the hearts of people this morning, let's begin there. Lord, begin there. Deal with that doubt. Help them to, to be willing to confess that doubt to somebody. Because their, their eternity could be standing right in the balance. Lord, you resurrected, which means that all that you said about heaven and all that you said about hell, all that you said about the kingdom is absolutely, completely true. So, Father, no longer should we be caught between two. May we choose this day whom we're going to serve. And may it be the only one worth serving. That's you. In all of your glory and all of your power. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 